Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to once again another episode of The Overlap in what's been a dizzying week. I think that's a good way of putting it, a dizzying week of football. Um, we watched, I guess, what can only be described of over the weekend in both England and La Liga as really fortuitous games all around. Um, of course, talking about the North London Derby uh, as kind of a highlight in England and um, whatever is left of Barcelona at this point in, in Spain. But we're not going to go into Spain at all. We're going to stay in England. We're going to stay in England, Rian. Um, I think Rian's there. Rian put on his glasses. You guys can't see him. Um, but he looks good with his glasses on now. He looks with his little little quarter zip zipped up. And his, uh, his, I think that's a can of beer. Are you drunk while recording this? Really? No, no, no. Not drunk. I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Just buzz. <laughs> it's a yeah, light yeah. buzz per um, se. I like it cracked open a Lagunitas. <laughs> Very nice. Because yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But uh Elias, how are you doing? Dude? How how was your weekend? Good. Um it's it's weird, right? Because I'm not back in New York and I I don't have as many people around me in quarantine right now, um, as other people might. But I really basically just spend the weekends doing what I want in, in a kind of like refreshing way. You just, you wake up and you like have a list, a couple of things you want to get done. You want to do, and you do them with no one else really saying anything. And, and that's kind of the whole day. And then you kind of zoom FaceTime, whatever, every once in a while. So yeah, it's, it's actually been shockingly chill. Like I'm kind of surprised by that and I'm, I'm enjoying, it. but how about you? You, uh, I know you spent some, some time outside enjoying, Whatever New York, whatever in New York is open at this point, but yeah, I would say whatever, whatever, whatever there is to do. Now that's getting cold, it's that list is shrinking rapidly. So yeah, significantly. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, this weekend I, I went and watched the North London or this the North London Derby with uh, with our roommate Jay, who we had on last week. Um. But that was it was a nice weekend though. A nice weekend. How's um how's his mental health doing after it? Uh, you know, he I, I think the United <laughs> result today probably helps him a bit. We're recording this on uh Tuesday night after just a few hours after um an, an extremely eventful <laughs> Tuesday in the Champions League. But uh no, it was a good weekend overall though. Um there's some interesting games. Like the the Leipzig and Bayern played, and that was a three-three, yeah. a pretty real, a very, very fun game. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that was it's, that was arguably the game of the weekend. I think, yeah, people kind of thought it was. At least I think it was overshadowed by um, the North London Derby in England. So I would call that my game of the weekend. But yeah, why don't I mean? Why don't we talk about the North London Derby, the game that, of course, we all watched? Um, and. <laughs> I think the title of this podcast is probably going to be something along the lines of Mourinho, we blank you and insert our emotion towards a Mourinho in that, in that line. I I don't know what it'll be, but um, where, where do we start with it? Let's, let's start with Arsenal for a second, because I think we, I think we know what we're going to say about Spurs, but let's start with Arsenal for a second. A team that we talked about in Arteta and, a manager that came in about a year ago now and has not maybe made the progress that we would have wanted to see. Um, 
and, and clearly I think <laughs> this encapsulated a large part of it. Like I don't I don't think there was ev- ever a point in the game where you felt like Arsenal were fully going to get a grasp of it other than maybe the last 10 minutes. And I think that speaks more to Arsenal rather than it does to Spurs in that clearly something is not working at the club. I don't know if it's fully Arteta, but some, something has to change, right? Like you can't, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect the same result or different results. Yeah, I, I think you're not wrong there. Um, it's For Arsenal, it's at this point for me where I feel like for them, I don't think anything will change until like one of two things happens here where either major signings, not just one signing, like not just a Mesut Ozil type. And, and we've seen them linked to Hassam Awar at Lyon and we've and seen them linked to, um, I can't, I don't know how to say his name because I don't, I don't think I've heard anyone actually say it um, out loud, but the guy at uh, RB Salzburg, uh, so Sobalasa, I don't know. Oh, I'm, I'm but, not going to try. I'm going to let you. Yeah. Have yeah. Yeah. There's, I'm sorry. Way too many consonants for an English speaker to even attend, really like, get a good grip at saying that name. But um, no, one or two things like major signings, not just one, not just one of those two guys. It, it needs to be signings in more than one position, honestly. But either that or major tactical change, which honestly might be necessary even with signings coming in because I look at like even the last year or two of Arsene Wenger when more or less we all kind of knew it was over like like it was over in terms of them ever reaching the heights that they were in in the mid-2000s with Arsene Wenger we knew that 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 was never going to happen again in his last couple years but even at that point, when they were a Europa League team that were just not good enough to make it into the top four, they were still entertaining. They still created chances all over the park. And then like their issues were defensive and defensive organization and whatever. But they still created chances and they were still an entertaining team. And so, you know, one of like I said, one of two things has to happen. It has to be major signings or changes tactical changes but that might need to happen anyway because as i think we've gone through the numbers a lot with with arsenal this season at least they're just not creating enough yeah i think your point on the just just dramatic tactical change that needs to occur i I, i'll say i'll just preface it by saying i don't have all the answers obviously but i have an idea of what i would change because i think that's the direction that arteta needs to go because I think the problem is twofold, but you gain a lot in changing the tactical formation. So uh, let me start with the first problem um, other than that, which I think is that the skill level from 2010 Arsenal to 2020 Arsenal is dramatically lower. And I think that's a, a product of boardroom mismanagement. I think that's a product of, I guess, kind of this lackadaisical approach to football and, and the project that's on the field. And that's that starts with management, um, sporting directors, um, your club owners, et cetera. That is a problem that very, I think, few people would have control over. And that that part of it is unfortunate at Arsenal. But I think the bigger problem in the short term that can be fixed 
is by realigning this squad on the field pretty differently than it is now, right? I think Arteta approaches the game with some sort of semblance of a 4-3-3, but I would argue that most of the front line for Arsenal do not play in any of their natural positions. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I don't think Aubameyang has been played in his natural position in the last two months. I don't think Lacazette is a false nine, but has drifted into that position for, I think, 75% of the games that at least I've watched for Arsenal. And I think maybe Saka is probably the only player that consistently gets in that's played in his preferred position as a, a left winger. And you can't rely on a teenager to pull all of the strings in a team that, in theory, is a quote-unquote big club. So I think it starts with rearranging the front line and their positioning. And I also think that has a kind of a a carry-on effect or a domino effect into the midfield in which clearly, clearly a dynamic midfield three is not something Arsenal can pull off. They just can't. They don't have the players. It, it doesn't exist. So... It's that not possible means, right now. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> not remotely possible. No, yeah. not a shot. Um, but quite honestly, I can see something like a three-five-two working, or I can see something like a three-four-three maybe even working. Um, but the three-man midfield is not going to work. So, Arsenal just I think they're like two steps away from being a good side again. But those two steps do take a good amount of time to implement. Yeah. It's I mean, that's just where I am feeling my feelings towards this team right now is just I don't think anything major will change in the in the next six months honestly like even with even with any signings that could be made in January and and I know that they're like our, our friend Jay and like and I'm sure other Arsenal fans who are feeling like potentially the uh, um, RB Salzburg signing. Or Awar could come in and have a Bruno Fernandez-like effect that Bruno Fernandez had on Manchester United during the second half of last season. But I, I mean, I think the difference potentially there between United and Arsenal is that, as I think we like to joke, like United has no real tactical plan at all, and so it's actually a bit easier for Bruno Fernandez to just have total control over the attack there rather than what we see at Arsenal, where it's a lot more regimented, a lot more um, rigid in the attack and less kind of free-flowing than I think uh, what was allowed to happen when Bruno Fernandes came into United. But either way, um, yeah, I don't think much changes with Arsenal anytime soon. And I don't think this is an indictment on the coach quite as much as, as we talked about last week, the whole, the whole process of a team. You know, it's not just, just having a good coach isn't enough. And there needs to be a concerted effort from everyone in the in the organization in the club. It's not it's not just going to be fixed because of one coach. They're not they're not powerful. They're not influential enough to change everything about to to just come in and be like, all right, well, yeah, well, <laughs> the coach comes in and automatically the transfer policy is fixed. You know, the, right? You look yeah, at the that, players that they brought in, like. Yeah, they're just, they're just not made at the the man, the managerial level. They're, they're yeah. way above that. Um, but one of the things, and I guess kind of shifting to Tottenham for a second, one of the things that I think stood out to me in specifically the Amazon documentary, not even this game, is how closely Daniel Levy and Jose Mourinho work. And 
I don't know if that's common throughout the rest of the Premier League clubs because we haven't seen documentaries like that in other <laughs> Premier League clubs. But the way that they kind of work together along with their sporting director um, at Spurs to, to really build and mend a project is exactly the kind of focus that a club like Arsenal would love to have right now. And all of, I think, I think the incentives for the Spurs management are on the same page and everyone's focused on the same goal. I can't say that's the same at Arsenal right now. And I think what you're seeing coming out of Spurs in the last three years with, of course, the Champions League final, um, or getting to the Champions League final, um, and their consistent you know, performances in getting close to, if not in the top four, you're seeing the results of those that type of management style. And I, I just... I love what this team represents in terms of like just doing the, the dirty work. I, I don't know if there's a way to describe this, honestly, but no, like, that's the I, dirty work. You're, yeah, not, you're not wrong. Not, was... not I'm talking like almost purely off the field, but like they're willing to put in the work for the success yeah. that they have started to get. And I think that started with Pochettino and then on the field, of course, well, Hoiberg does all yeah. the dirty work, but that's a whole <laughs> other other discussion. But let's let's yeah. talk about Spurs for a second because they have. I mean, thoughts? Yeah, we got to talk about them in this game. It, it look Spurs are, I would say the most both the most and least predictable team in at least the, at least in the top six because you know exactly how they'll play in just about every game and let's let's at least limit it to games against big teams against uh other talented teams you know exactly how they'll play but it is really hard to predict how that the goal will come because it is completely predicated on which mistake will the opposition make like how are the opposition going to get caught out this time and credit to them because they execute every so far every single time. And when you have Harry Kane and Hungman son who at the moment are just Bayern levels of efficient, <laughs> honestly, because if you compare it to like Bayern last season, like it's, they are at that level of efficiency, but I just thought that both goals Perfectly encapsulated what a successful Mourinho team performance looks like. Restrict all area, all space in the defensive third, and fully leverage on your forward's ability to execute perfectly. And in you look at Hungman Son's first goal, we we can we can talk about the fact that maybe Arsenal should probably get closer to Harry Kane to not allow that pass in the first place. Fair enough. But once that pass is made, I, I I don't think there's much Arsenal could have done from there. Like, you could say maybe they could close Sun out there. They could, but no, I from mean, that they, area, you allow that shot every time because... Yeah, yeah, because 99 times, times out of 100. Yeah, it's not going in, right? right. It's it's not... Um, but it, And then the second goal, too, oof, there are obviously things around the, the Partey, Partey's... Um, involvement in that where he gets injured and he starts to walk off. And I think some people kind of like down in the middle of the pitch, but you know, I, I think we're picking at straws there, honestly, but 
it really starts from Arsenal are in attack. And I think it's Bellerin that tries to play a ball into Aubameyang and he plays it behind him and immediately everyone's caught out for Arsenal. And it's really just like they didn't execute in the final third. And that led to the mistake that you couldn't have predicted <laughs> that ends up coming and, and Tottenham are in a 4v2. And even with that, when Harry Kane picks up the ball, his only option really is to hit it straight up. And and that's the only chance he could have scored was pretty much hitting the underside of the crossbar, which is what he did. And, and those are two unstoppable strikes. So, you know, a textbook Mourinho team performance in a big game and a 2-0 scoreline, which also is very classic Mourinho too, right? So... I mean, it, it, like I said, most predictable and least predictable team there is. But right now, they're executing perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it exactly right. Um, the interesting thing with Spurs, and I would specify um, Mourinho Spurs, is that I have a massive respect for managers that are able to transcend and transform as they go through their managerial career. I mean, you've seen it with Klopp. You've seen it in some ways with Pep. You've seen it with the best man. I think Alex Ferguson is probably the best encapsulation of that, but you've seen them over time and time again, transform their ideas and adapt play to the style and physicality of players in the day and age that they're in. Jose Mourinho has thrown that playbook playbook completely out the window and has basically said to any team that he has been on the last 10 years that you are either playing the way that I would like you to play or you are not playing for this team at all. And somehow... See Deli Alley and Paul Pogba. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it works. It's the craziest thing, but it works. And... I honestly don't know how I just don't know how he does it, but the way that he has Spurs playing right now, just from a tactical setup, infuriates me to no end. It is the most unattractive, you know, dirty kind of not like fouling, but just like very much in the weeds and like focus on the physical aspect of the game. There's no, there's no focus on tactical setup. It's just, it's just be an asshole, basically. Yeah, it's like Mar- Mourinho is like is the Machiavelli of exactly ball coaches. Just utilitarian as it gets. It Completely. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about individuals. We're doing everything for the team. Yeah, who and said anything is, about consequentialism? Exactly. Yeah, he is. <laughs> exactly. He is peak utilitarian at that, like <laughs> at his finest with this. But I love oh that you brought Lord. that up, though. I, lo- I love that you brought that up, though, because. It's funny, like we like to think of really good teams or like really successful teams as being ones that create constantly creating chances and constantly putting pressure on the other team and and thinking of goals coming as like a bottleneck of chances where any Mourinho team, exact opposite. It's like we're taking the three or four chances. We're gonna I'm betting that we're gonna take the two two to three of the four or five chances that we get during this game. 
And it just, you know, shows us that, like, there's not, we, as much as we love, Elias and I, we love to see soccer played in the way that we see it played by Pep Guardiola and Marcelo Bielsa and Klopp and, um, and I think you'd say like, even in um, Hansi Flick has had Bayern playing. We love that aesthetically, but at some level we have to separate ourselves that that's not the only way to win. And I think we touched on that last week with, with um, Aton. It's not the only way to win. Well, it's, it's, it's well, not the only, it's, it's not, it's not the only right way to win. Way. <laughs> I would argue there's yes. a right and wrong way. Look, yes. Yes. Again, we're, we're, we're becoming philosophers at this point. Again, where he's Machiavelli, and I, I like other philosophers than Machiavelli, but you know, it works. It works in the end, and nothing shows you that that it works in the with the fact that Spurs are twelfth in shots per game, but third in goals scored in this season. And then you look at the zoo, eleventh through fourteenth in the Premier League in terms of shots per game contains four of the seven highest scoring teams in the league. So in the end, like it doesn't matter. It, it's just this game is this game. is. I think I maybe have said this to Elias before, but at the end of the day, soccer is, is kind of basically adult pinball on some, at some level, like the ball is just, we can't predict how it's going to go in at any point. And it just, my last one in this kind of harping back to, um, I think a quote from last or what we were talking about last week is in the number, the numbers game, like in that experiment that I was talking about last week, one of the things that they found is that on average, a clean, getting a clean sheet, holding a team to zero goals is about the same points value of scoring two goals of just scoring two goals every game, regardless of how, how much you can see on the other side. Scoring two goals is just about the same as getting a clean sheet. And there are two ways to go about this game. And we look at Liverpool and Manchester City, and they definitely err on the side of scoring as many goals as possible. And Mourinho is, if I get a clean sheet every game, I'm I'm guaranteed a point. And so it's clash of styles. Clash of styles. I think that's sort of the thing that makes us really enjoy the sport more than anything is, that the, is the clash of styles. And... This is it this year. Marino's got the team that he wants. Um, we'll, we'll get on to Liverpool about their injuries and whatnot, but Manchester City have pretty much the team that they have and that they wanted. And now we're really going to see Jose Mourinho with the team that he wants versus teams with better attacking squads. How does this actually look? How does... Can this still win a league title? And that's going to be just a lingering thing throughout the rest of the season. And well, well how, be... how about this? I mean, I think we wrapped up the, the North London Derby part of things, but answer this question. Do you, do you think that Spurs can go on to actually win the Premier League? I think that's a fair question now. I think it's a fair question. I, I think I have you, no are you reason. just going to not jinx it? No, no, saying... no. I mean, if anything, I would reverse jinx it and say that, yes, they absolutely can. But, <laughs> but no, no, I, I, I think uh, absolutely. Yeah, they can. Why? Like there's. It's very obvious, again, that he has the team that he wants that can execute his game plan. 
the way that he wants it to be executed. And so at the end of the day, like Mourinho's teams are care more about scoring, about getting points than scoring goals is the way to put it. Honestly, <laughs> like, so they'll get the points necessary. It's the, there, there is an inverse relationship there, but <laughs> yeah, will they get enough? It's It's more of a question of, will they get enough wins to win the league? Or will they end up drawing a lot more games than they then, or drawing more games than is necessary to win the league? Right. I, I think in Jose Mourinho's first season, that Chelsea team had a chance to be to win the title, but they drew a lot of games because one, they didn't quite have the talent to fully win the league, but also it's 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 the game that you play when. Uh, when your team is set up in in that way, and again, not not a total criticism, but it's it's just it is the risk that you run. Everyone runs a risk. You you run the risk of not of having trouble being able to break down the opponent and scoring on a consist on a, a reliably consistent basis when you play like that, and when you play like how Liverpool and Manchester Manchester City play, you see the downfalls of that when they played against or when City played against um, Tottenham. So. Yeah, we've got Tottenham versus Liverpool in a week and a half, so or less than or eight days from now, next Wednesday. So a clash of styles again, which will be really interesting to me. Very true, very true. Well, Rian, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back talking, of course, about whatever is left of the United now um, against a game in against West Ham, and of course the Chelsea-Leeds game in which Chelsea are proving that they may be title contenders. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back talking a little bit of Manchester United this time around. We are, I should preface this saying, I should preface this by saying we're recording this after their Champions League uh, loss to Leipzig, albeit close loss, shockingly, Um so we're not we're not going to touch on that. We're just going to kind of focus more on their uh, their Premier League and their game against West Ham performance. Um, Rian, I, I still don't know what to make of Manchester United. I will probably say that time and time again, but this team does not play with any clear and cohesive structure. I mean, we can talk about the Paul Pogba comments from Mino, Mino you know, Rayola, but it this team this team I think is like two diverging lines. Do you have one line in terms of some positive, or I should say data points, like one data point that's like really high. And like, sometimes you're like, wow, they just won out and, you know, three, four games in a row winning away from home. Those are high data points. And then you have their lows, right? Their champions league loss to Leipzig uh, performance against uh, PSG performances against crystal palace, things like that. And, they're really, really down low on the y-axis. But if you drew a trend line along the, all those data points, it would still be so, so negative. And that's <laughs> that's just how I look at this Manchester United team. Yeah. I, without getting too much into to what happened today against Leipzig, and, and for those who are listening, United lost 3-2 to Leipzig today. It looked Honestly, pitiful for the first half. Very similar to what happened in West Ham in their West Ham game. First half, 
West Ham uh, uh, versus United. West Ham had an XG advantage of 1.97 to 0.08 for Manchester United in the first half. And then Bruno Fernandes came on and everything changed for United. The second half XG was uh, West Ham's 0.56 to United's 1.72. And United end up coming back and winning the game 3-1. Controversial first goal because the ball almost definitely goes out and then curves back in. Um, But... Bruno's 45 minutes in the second half, 10 goal creating actions, three, sorry, 10 goal shot creating actions, three goal creating actions. And just because I I feel like I have not really gotten a chance to actually explain the goal creating and shot creating actions. And I've been talking about them for the, for, for the last couple of weeks, the shot creating actions are just the two, Offensive actions directly leading to a shot. So that could be passes, dribbles, drawing a foul, whatever. And for goal creating actions, it's the same thing. Two offensive create, uh, actions leading to a goal. Passes, dribbles, fouls. So Bruno, 10 and 3 on that. Six passes into the final third. Four into the, pen- into the penalty area. And 1.2 expected assists. All in just 45 minutes. Higher than anyone else in the entire game, West Ham or Manchester United. Right? It's just it. There is no creative spark without him on the pitch. Even with Paul Pogba on the pitch, who played that the whole entire game and scored a wonderful first goal for United, and just we just always see the flashes of this. But I think with all that is happening for United, what is more? Uh, interesting to talk about with them than anything that's happening on the field, honestly, uh, is Mino Raiola's comments from this week where he said that Paul Pogba's time at Manchester United is over. And in the past, Mino Raiola has said uh, that he always tries to formulate a goal with his players that as what do we want? And we're not going to sit and wait for and see the wind blows and, and wait I'm for sorry. things to happen. Did you did you say we? Yes, <laughs> yes, of course. Interesting okay. choice of words. No, Mino. Okay, all right, Mino. <laughs> I am fully. I'm fully on Mino Raiola's side here. Back in 2016 with United, he's he said to basically said this to Pogba and Zlatan is like, I think you guys have to go to that club because they need you. Like United needs you. Like that's always his thing. Like what club needs you? Where do you need to go? And so I, I like Mino Raiola in the sense of he only cares about his players and where they profile wise make the most sense. Right. And more than oh, like uh, show what team, what team needs him. No, screw that dude. Like, United have screwed this up for the last four years. And granted, we can say Pogba's also screwed it up in his own way. But uh, the real question right now with Paul Pogba, going back to Raiola's um, comments in the past, which club needs Paul Pogba right now? And I don't know. Alex, do you have any? Do you? At this point, it feels like I didn't think he was going to play another game for United after those comments, yeah, but he came yeah. in today and he, and he ended up scoring the second goal <laughs> in the game against Leipzig. But um, I, I mean, I can't see him there past January, but 
I don't know, Ellie, is it, which club do you think needs Paul Pogba right now? Because that seems like... It just Are seems you like talking about kind of outside of Manchester United, though? Because I don't... They might not... I, need, I mean, I think it's possible to say they don't need Paul Pogba. They don't need him, his type of player in terms of... That's. I don't think their biggest issue is a hold of like a deeping deep midfielder he's just not the type of player i think that they absolutely need right now but i think there are teams that need him more than than manchester united do i think manchester united's problems are much deeper than paul pogba which is not i i agree his problem yeah i agree but if you want if you want the actual answer to my question um i think the one team in the world that needs paul pogba but actually does not realize that they need Paul Pogba as a result of them not really making serious offer or inquiring. That's Real Madrid. I think Real Madrid are the team that most need Paul Pogba in the world. The reason why is because Paul Pogba is best suited as a deep lying, you know, box to box, almost midfielder, maybe not in the traditional sense, but in the more modern fluid and dynamic sense of the, of the profile. Yeah, he needs the freedom, right? Yeah, and and he has the, he would have the freedom to do that. Um, or a team, he, you know what I'm saying. He would need to be in a team that allows him to have that freedom. Real Madrid. First off, let's make the assumption for a second that let's say Zidane is not coaching this team next year, which I think is a non-zero possibility. Not because of performance, just for a variety of reasons. Like literally next calendar year. <laughs> okay, next season. Sorry, next season. Um, let's say that happens. Then what in all likelihood will happen was your Modric's and your Tony Cross's of the world are probably going to start to take a look at their career, take a look at where they want to go, how much longer they're going to stay at Real Madrid. That opens the space up entirely for Paul Pogba to slot perfectly into any of those positions. Luka Modric is, I think, the quintessential free roaming, uh, I would say, center midfielder. In, in the truest sense of the, the word. And that's the exact type of player that Paul Pogba is. I think it's a very, very similar switch. I, I don't think Luka Modric, or I, I should say, I don't think Paul Pogba is maybe as quick in terms of the, his technical ability on the ball as, as Modric is. Um, but at the same time, I think the player profiles are very, very similar. And he doesn't have to go the whole way into the final third, which I don't think is where Paul Pogba thrives, right? That's a Martin Odegaard. That's a kind of almost a Tony Kroos type role. But I think that swap would be perfect for Paul Pogba. I rest my case, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good, that's a good show. I, there were rumors in the summer about, um, potentially that, that Juve, I think we're going to put a bid in for him, if not for the co- the COVID stuff. And it's interesting because Mina Raiola literally said in that uh, interview, Oh yeah, Juve is still a possibility for him right now. It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, uh, the American in me, the U.S. national team fan in me, is like, uh, you know, yeah, maybe Madrid is the right spot for him. And uh, Weston McKenney, who scored today, should probably, you know, um, not have to deal with Paul Pogba potentially taking his spot, but. At the same time, I'm like, damn, Paul Pogba and Weston McKinney might actually look really cool next to each other. But anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. Um, 
No, I think Paul Pogba, it's just, yeah, what club needs him most? It's, it's what club needs him, what club can afford him right now is a different question, right? So, I don't know, there's a lot still for United. I mean, it, the most quintessential or uh, on-brand thing that could happen to Manchester United within the next week is that they go and beat Manchester City over the weekend because that's just like that's just no, no, that's just that's... who they are. No. I mean <laughs> look, I'm not a betting man, but any of our listeners out there, if you guys bet on soccer, I would heavily consider throwing money on Manchester United to beat Manchester City this weekend Stop. because Stop it. Stop because it. Because it would only make too much sense for how this United team has operated for the last two years. So anyway Oh, that's well, such a hot day. All right, we'll, we'll talk about it. I mean, time. I really don't feel it. Yeah, we'll, we can talk about it next week if it if it happens. I don't feel it's that hot. We will. Oh, but, we will. We will. We'll, but, we'll talk um, about it. We'll talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, don't even worry about it. Let's let's move on to Chelsea Leeds because I, I think we have more congruent and concrete thoughts on Chelsea and Leeds. I don't think congruent. Is there the two right teams? There. Yeah, no, probably not. But these two <laughs> teams are these two teams are definitely much easier to predict than yes. United. Yes, um, agreed. And what was probably, as a Chelsea fan, as me myself, I believe this was the most impressive performance of the season for Chelsea, considering the opposition. Um, you, you, Tottenham is a much more talented opposition than Leeds, but obviously play in a very different style. And that game, if you watch it, it was a lot more about Chelsea trying to make sure they don't get beat on the counter by um, Spurs and trying to, to uh, take chances when they can. But, you know, Chelsea Leeds was extremely impressive, honestly. Honestly, against a Leeds team that has given fits to every single team, not just below, not just bottom of the table, not just, sorry, bottom half, but also top half. We saw how difficult their, the game was for uh, Manchester City earlier this season in a 1-1 draw that was just a literal basketball game, <laughs> but um, yeah, considering the opposition, I mean, Chelsea re- recorded the highest single game XG of any Premier League team this season. And to do that against uh, um, Leeds, who we would never say that they're extremely good defensively, but the sheer amount of pressure that they put on other teams makes it really hard for teams to consistently create chances. And, in terms of chance creation, I mean, it was the second best performance against Leeds this season since uh, Liverpool. I think in the first game, so yeah, all good, all good stuff from from Chelsea in that game, and um, yeah, they're looking more and more like legitimate title challengers. Wow, wow! I finally, finally. Got you to say it. That I know he time, was waiting for the that. The whole time, the whole time you were talking, I was like, I wonder if he's gonna. I wonder if he's gonna say it. I genuinely wonder, and he did. Finally, I've been saying this for I think about a month now that Chelsea are my favorite to win the title um, in the, in the long term, and I think that's based on a variety of variables that I mentioned before. But in the context of this Leeds game, I think I, it, sh- it showed you very much why this team is posed to make a consistent run. They have the depth. They have the skill. 
They have the tactical nuances down in terms of what Lampard wants to actually execute on the field. The idea is there. You could you can see there's an identity about this team now. And coming up against the, the manager in Marcel Bielsa, I was more interested to, to just see the pure tactical battle. And I'm kind of surprised that Chelsea won it so handily that they did. Like that alone was really a stamp for me. I think this could be a real I don't want to say turning point because I don't think the season needs to be turned for Chelsea, but I think it's a point of significance, a checkpoint almost for this team um, just because they had maybe been on and off in some games and some performances this season, especially against mid table opposition like Leeds. but to see them just step up the quality of play significantly it, it was it was genuinely really refreshing, and I think every Chelsea fan in the world right now would be ecstatic. Like that is the best possible scenario that they could have walked out with. Yeah, and you, know, you have to credit a, a fair amount of that high xG in that game to Timo Werner <laughs> clearing the ball off the line. Oh my god! I, yeah, I mean, it, probably the worst. I've never seen anything like it. Never seen a single thing like it in my life. The ball is, at worst, probably hitting the post. And uh, Timo, instead of just helping it on into the goal, tries to take like a touch <laughs> on the goal line and then uh, hits it onto the underside of the crossbar. Um, and I know he's missed a, f- a few like really good chances in the last two weeks. And I, I think... It's very easy to criticize him because of those. And naturally you expect that he would finish most of those. Right. But I think there's a larger conversation to like his reduced role at Chelsea in the sense where at Leipzig, the team was very much constructed to set up chances for him specifically. And we, and we see how good of a coach Julian Nagelsmann is with the fact that he doesn't have a real striker or other than Yusuf Poulsen, he doesn't have a real striker that he's playing in a lot of these games today against United. He didn't play a striker. He played in Kunku and like Danny Olmo up top together. And they end up scoring three goals in that game. It's it's he kind of tailors it to whatever he has on the team. And they were set up to create chances for Timo Werner last season. And with Timo Werner coming into Chelsea, the players that are there and the players that came in with him, the team is not set up purely for him to create chances. So that's where you see that he has uh, fewer shots per 90, fewer touches in the box per 90, fewer XG per 90 than in the last two seasons. But we see the difference in his role is that his his goal-creating actions per 90, his tackles per 90, his non-penalty expected goals per shot, which is just a kind of a measure of, of the efficiency of the shots that he's getting, the high-chance high shots that he's um, getting, than in the last two seasons, you see, like I said, the team's not built up to focus solely on him getting shots. But even without that, he's contributing a lot to the team outside of that, as you saw with the assist to Christian Pulisic in the game. Um, and he's still getting to really good areas, as, as you see with the, the um, non-penalty expected goals per shot. So a reduced role. It's very fair to be critical of him for not for missing the easy chances that he's had in the last two weeks. But I think the most important thing to... Frank Lampard and I think the team as a whole is that he's getting into those areas still consistently. And as you saw on the last goal against Leeds where he assisted to um, Christian Pulisic, 
that pace is still outrageously difficult to deal with for teams that are pushing for a goal at some point and and getting that goal to clinch the game is just as important as getting the first goal i think i would i would honestly go as far as say as the the first goal is probably even more important um but but yes i i completely agree with everything you're saying i don't know if timo werner will have so much of a reduced role going forward i would say but i think there is there is there's something there in in that discussion. I don't want, I don't want to speculate just because I don't think we have enough data points about where Timo no, Werner will right. fit yeah. into this team. So it's like, it's, it's like you've seen Christian Pulisic, for example, come in and out of this team, right? How does that directly implicate and affect Timo Werner's positioning and, and chance creation? I think there's a direct correlation to who he's been surrounded by too. And that is not always consistent as well. So it's, it's spot tough. on. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's tough to, kind of make that that prediction but i do i think the tldr is that chelsea are in a very good position to to continue to press for the premier league title um and that would that would certainly be something for frank lampard so yeah we'll give them one last thing before we get on yeah uh, one last yes. thing before we come to the thing. break is um yeah injuries hakim ziyech got injured in that game Callum hudson Odoi got injured the next day in training <laughs> um they're both out for two weeks so Fingers crossed that Christian can stay healthy for at least another couple of weeks because they're really, he's really the only winger left on the team right now, a uh, natural winger. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how the next couple of weeks go. But shall we head into a break, Elias, and we'll, we'll come back with touching on my still my favorites for the uh, Premier League title, Liverpool? Let's. Let's take a quick break. And, of course, we'll talk about my not-so-favorite team for uh, the Premier League title. All right, ladies and gentlemen, for the last section of the pod, Rian is going to explain to us why he believes Liverpool are still the best team in the league and the the favorites for the Premier League title in an effort to not jinx his wishes for Chelsea to win the Premier League title. Of course, he'll tell this all in the context of the Wolves game, you know, coincidentally, of course, um, in which they, quite frankly, put Wolves to the sword. So, Rian, explain to me why you think Liverpool are going to win the league and why I'm, I'm wrong in saying that the team that you are a fan of is not going to win the league. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it, this is not to be like against Chelsea at all. It's just like, I have to, I have to be somewhat realistic in a sense. Okay. Oh, so you're saying I'm not realistic. Start. Okay. Got no, it, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not, I would never say that Elliot. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that's bullshit, um, <laughs> but no, into the, the Liverpool Wolves game, I, the thing that I'm taking away from this, and I guess from the last couple of weeks with Liverpool, um, they would have won this league comfortably with Virgil van Dyke is what I'm realizing. Like, I think I my prediction was Man City winning the league before the season. That would have been totally wrong if Virgil van Dijk was healthy this entire season. If Joe Gomez probably doesn't get his his injury either. Because you look at what they've done and, and the players that have come in and how they've been able to still defend at a very high level. 
while at the same time scoring a lot and and creating not just scoring a lot creating chances at the same level even with the fact that that their midfielders are not as aggressive as last season and then you throw on top of all that the concept of Tiago as a Liverpool player still exists I mean, we're, I think we're barely holding on to it right now because who knows when he's going to be able to come back. And I think that might be like, it might be like January, honestly, at this point. But you throw in the concept of Tiago as Liverpool player still exists, who will make them, who will take them to another level when he's on the pitch consistently. And Trent Alexander-Arnold came back this weekend. I mean, it's, it, this team is still the best team in the league I, I think I think they're still playing as the best team in the league and a 4-0 win against Wolves easy 4-0 win where they didn't have Allison and Keller comes in who's a youth player academy player comes in and does a great job it's it's really hard to see how to stop this team once they start getting a couple players back mind you they're still missing like James Milner and Nabi Keita too so Okay, so you uh, you partially convinced me that Liverpool are still a strong side. To be fair, that was never in doubt, um, so I never doubted that part of it. But I don't know if you saying that sans Virgil van Dijk, Liverpool, I mean, or sorry, with Virgil van Dijk, Liverpool would have been clearly the favorites, and this wouldn't have even been, you know, remotely close I, I agree that he adds that level of discipline and that level of almost comfort in the back and knowing that you have one of the best, if not the best center back of the world, but you also have to remember, the best. let's, let's, okay. Let's not Fair enough. No, the best. no the, best. The, the best center back in the world. Um, I don't know if we're thinking about his form before his injury so much and it was fair. pretty up and down. That's and totally fair. I don't know how that would have played. No one knows how that would have played out for, you know, a month, two months after, you know, his ACL injury. So it, it's just completely what ifs. And I, I think that's a dangerous game to play. So I will say that, yes, Liverpool, I think this was probably Liverpool's best game of the season. Um, in the Wolves game, arguably. Um, I think they played well against Ajax and, and a couple of other games here and there, but this was comfortably a, a, a performance that, I mean, if Firmino is just nutmegging you for fun at this point, then, like, you know you've got problems. And <laughs> it, it, I don't. I, I just think this was such a dominant performance from Jurgen Klopp's team um, that they, they can start to build off of this momentum I don't know who they start building it with given, you know, the injuries and the, the COVID related, um, you know, news that they've gotten, but I think they're still in a good spot as well. Yeah. I know. I, th- I think that's a really good pushback from you on the, on the Van Dyke thing, because and I looked at their like attacking pressures in the, in the attacking third um, in the first few games with Van Dyke. And they were something like 70, pressures in the attacking third per game when their average last season was like 47. And since Van Dyke has gone out, that's dropped dramatically. And and I think maybe more than anything, Liverpool had gotten some sort of like hubris about having Van Dyke at the back, feeling like they could just 
throw everyone to the front with the with the attack with the pressures and and uh, high press and whatnot. But um, just before we like move on, it's like I have to give so much love to the fact that Curtis Jones, an academy player from Liverpool, who is still in his first real season with Liverpool, his first real season as like a week to week starter. He turns 20 in January at the end of January. He has helped really soften the blow of note of Tiago Alcantara being out. He's sitting in the 87th percentile. This is compared to top to the top five leagues in Europe. So you're talking about Spain, uh, England, Italy, France, and tell me, Ellis, am I missing one more? Um, it's Spain, Portugal, Italy, it's? France, Germany, Germany. Oh, yes, you're talking. Right. Yes, in terms of those leagues, 87th percentile in passes into the final third, 93rd percentile in tackles one percentage. Uh, you look at his numbers there; he's honestly performing better than Jordan Henderson has this season. And at a very comparable level to Gino to Gini Wijnaldum, who is probably leaving at the end of the season, and so to have that player that can just slot in for them, and basically the team's performance level does not drop at all. It's unreal. And then and Fabinho coming in and being one of the best center backs in the Premier League, not anything that we could have seen happening. On top of all of this, they're still first in in xG and second. In uh, in touches in the attacking pe- penalty area to Aston Villa, like, they're still maybe not a hundred percent of the levels that they were at last season, but they're even at eighty five to ninety percent. That's still better than everyone else. Sands Manchester City, if they're able to get back to those same levels, I, I think so. You make, you make a really good point. Um, right. Like having say like Tiago on your side for a consistent period of time is going to add a lot to this team. That's the one, I think that's the one X factor we have not seen for more than two weeks where I I can say, Oh my God, Liverpool are easily the hardest team to beat in, in England by far. I think that's where I'd really like to see Tiago specifically come back and show what he has done for the better part of eight years. I just don't know what that's going to look like. I think we got a sense of what that's going to look like. Um, and, and I think this, this speak for themselves, but, but with such a tightly packed schedule, I'm curious to see how much game time he actually gets. Cause we didn't see it as consistently as maybe we would have liked the beginning of the season when he came in. So I think that there's definitely an argument to be made in that space. I think you're onto something. Um, I just, we're not going to see it obviously before the end of 2020, but um, beginning of 2021, I'm, I'm very curious to see what Tiago has to bring to the table. Yeah, he could be, he could be like a pseudo January signing for them, honestly. And in that, terms yeah, of yeah. The effect that he could have for them. So for um, sure. shall we move on to the, to the rest of the Premier League? Right, we're Let's. start with uh, City quite easily getting past Fulham. Where Fulham didn't play poorly, 
was just, you know, it's, it, yeah, yeah. Let's, they, Ful- they Fulham have been doing season. better in the last exactly. month. They have, yeah. they have been doing okay. I mean, specifically, I mean, the lesser game was yeah. the biggest of them all. It helps. It helps that they're, that I think I, I read something where compared to their starting lineup on the first day against Arsenal, I think something like nine or 10 of those players are no longer starting for them. <laughs> <laughs> which which that's, was a great kind first of step. Smart first step for them because I remember watching that game and being like, oh, this just looks like a championship team playing a Premier League team. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, no, good stuff on them for it, it seemed like I feel better about them not getting relegated than Burnley, West Brom, or Sheffield United. So that's a great first step for them. Um, but City are getting ominously healthy. They're only missing Sergio Aguero now, and I think that's been what they've been missing the most is a goal scorer. So I think I think City maybe slowly creeps themselves back into um, the title picture. I, I, I still don't think that ultimately they'll have enough to win it this year, but I have no uh, doubts about them making top four this season. Yeah, I don't. I, I think the the early emergency kind of scared, whatever you want to call it. Quite frankly, I think that was a bit of a myth in some ways. I think over time, right? I, I will say this time and time again: talent shines through. Um, maybe, maybe I'll kind of buy my words there with Barcelona, but we'll get to that later. But um, <laughs> with Manchester City, at least with an, in a well coached side. I think they have the quality at the end of the day, especially in, I think it should be noted, a top six or maybe let's say three to seven that's so tightly packed that one game makes all the difference. So you're basically grasping at straws for the next several weeks on who is in fourth or third versus seventh or eighth. It's basically the same thing. Um, And a couple of those teams do play each other in the next several weeks. So um, yeah, I don't think there's a doubt that Manchester City makes top four, um, unless something completely drastic happens. But for the most part, I'm continually, you know, I, I think City are one of those teams that are on the up where United are one of those teams, like I said, in a linear data set, they're going down. Just up um, and down. I like yeah. up and down. I, who knows? But, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I think for the, the Manchester Derby coming up this weekend, I don't think there's a thought in my mind that Manchester United are going to be the team that wins this game. There's no reason for me to believe that Manchester United should win this game. Right. But. Oh, my God. (laughs) But I'm just saying history and the way that you can rely on them being. Respect. 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 (laughs) Three titles. No. um, (laughs) um, No, no. But, yeah. Who knows? We'll see. I, I. I would expect that City probably will win, but we should not be remotely surprised if United wins this game. Uh, anyway, so the last few things from this weekend, Jamie Vardy with the winner against Sheffield United where he destroyed the corner flag. Um, it was just, it was peak Vardy. Love to see that. Uh, Everton draws against Burnley. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a depth problem. I mean, at the end, 
Well, we go back to to uh, my little thing about them a few a month or two ago, about them potentially being able to win the league. So I said I had to say it at that point before everything that happened afterwards, and I don't regret saying it at the time that I did because it would have been weird to say it now, right? Okay, fair, fair enough. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go down that <laughs> rabbit hole at all. I, I like completely empathize with that. But the, I think the what the last thing I'll mention before we wrap up that was of interest to me uh, this weekend was oh gosh, what were the games outside outside of the Fulham game that you or the Burnley Everton game? You just said it. I don't know why I'm blanking all of a sudden. What game was before that? Uh oh, Vardy, yes. Lester, Lester, and Sheffield. Yes, uh, Jamie Vardy. I I actually just want to touch on Sheffield for a second. I feel so bad for their their fall from grace. Like they are stuck on. Is it is it still a point? One point through uh, the first eleven games. Yeah, that is so sad. Like I I don't even know. Yeah, the overlapping center backs thing from last year clearly is not working anymore. Um, yeah, it. I, I don't know because Sheffield are. Genuinely, like a decent side. Decent side. Uh, yeah, I mean, their ta- they, their taxes are very good. Are very interesting. And at the end of the day, you know, you look at the the players that they have, and their team is actually not that much different than it was two years ago when they were in the championship. And this is the Premier League. Like, you, you have to, unfortunately. As as great as it is to be able to come up and oh we did it with these players you have to spend money it's it's yeah. just how it has to be and um, they got Rian Brewster from um, Liverpool over the summer and he hasn't started the last few games and this is this is kind of what it is I mean their their strikers didn't really score last season and um, and they were able to still get I think it was eighth right and it's yeah just, you know, yeah exactly you don't spend the money. It's 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 tough to compete. There 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 are a lot of teams that are willing to spend the money to to put their teams into the top half. So unfortunate for them. Uh, my last thing before we head out of here, Elias, uh, the Villa Newcastle game that was supposed to be last Friday got postponed because Newcastle had a COVID outbreak. Fortunately, and um, yeah, so that game gets got gets postponed, and now and Villa are still on nine games, so only played nine games and. Oh wow! Um, mostly everyone else had played eleven, so there's still like it'll be interesting to see where how they make up some of these games. But it'll be interesting um, for them to get a Europa League spot. Hey, they're not outside of it. Who knows? They could win a cup. I mean, like this, they, they feel like a they feel like a a domestic cup type of team, where it's just one game, one offs. They feel like that. They feel like more of a of that than than a team that can consistently. For thirty-eight games, end up getting into the Europa League, dude. So. I would gi- I would give that that crown to West Ham before I gave it to Aston Villa, but oh, I mean, that's not that's neither wow. here nor there. Wow, wow, kind of racist of you to say that about Ross Barkley. <laughs> oh but. my god, dude! I love Nigerians. Come on. <laughs> oh my god. Well, I think that wraps up the, the Premier League podcast. I need that's I need probably to, a good spot. I think that's yeah. I think that's what we call it. Good God. <laughs> Before Rihan goes on a on a Nigerian Ross Barkley rant again. But anyway, thank you guys as always for listening. We'll be back later in the week talking a little La Liga, why Barcelona are destined to be relegated. Real Madrid will join them in the Europa League. And of course, Real Sociedad would likely go on to win the title or Atletico. Who knows? But thank you all for listening to the Premier League portion of this week's pod. And we'll be back sooner rather than later. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.